0: This is Chrononauts, a science fiction literature history podcast. This section is part of a host choice episode which covers Harry Martinson's Aniara, Gral Arielsky's Tales of Mars trilogy, and Renato Prescraniero's A Night of Twenty-One Hours. This segment focuses on the Arielski stories. Gral Aryelski, also known as Stefan Stefanovich Petrov, was born to a peasant family on December 9th, 1888. During his education at the Karl May School, which he graduated from in 1909, Ardelski became involved in politics. He joined the Socialist Revolutionary Party in 1907, the activities of which led to his first arrest the same year he left Karl May School, spending a few months in Kresty Prison. After this, he studied astronomy at St. Petersburg University. He was, though, expelled by 1914, having only completed five courses. Before this occurred, however, Arielsky published his first poem, Dashka, in a publication called The Universe in 1910. Around this time, he also met other poets, including the leader of the Russian ego-futurism movement, Igor Severanin. Alexander Bloch and Ivan Ignatiev. In 1911, Arielsky published his first book of poetry and published his manifesto, Ego Poetry in Poetry, the following year. 1913 saw the publication of his second book of poems, including ones dealing with scientific themes. From 1915 onwards, Arielsky appeared to have published little poetry and only began publishing any works after the Russian Civil War. During the war period, he was arrested two more times, only one of which he was jailed for. In 1923, he published a few more poems, as well as a drama in verse called The Nymph Atta. In 1924, he turned to fiction, starting with the three stories we'll be looking at tonight. He wrote three other sci-fi stories besides these, Citizen of the Universe in 1925, Gift of the Selenites in 1926, and The Man Who Visited Mars in 1927. While the former of these three stories was in a publication known as Historical Youth Story, the other two were published in the Soviet Union's longest-running pulp magazine, World of Adventure. In 1928, Arielsky published a historical fiction novel called The Enemy of Ptolemy. However, after the revolution, he continued having legal problems for the party he was a member of before the revolution, the Socialist Revolutionary Party, had split from the Bolsheviks during the Civil War. He was therefore arrested for anti-Soviet propaganda and agitation and sentenced to 10 years in a labor camp in 1935. Unfortunately, Arielsky died during this sentence on April 15, 1937. The first of our three stories by Arielski. All part of a loosely connected trilogy known as Tales of Mars is Professor Dagen's Laboratory, published in the May to June 1924 issue of the magazine Man and Nature. And the second story, Two Worlds, was published in the July to August issue of the same magazine. These two stories were included with the last installment, Towards a New Sun, when it was published in 1925. And I think that the stories definitely get more elaborate and more detailed as they go along.
1: Yeah. It's really interesting to me how the stories were written, obviously, or at least published very close together and Mm -hmm. in the same magazine, but they all have pretty distinct tones. They're kind of different from one another in that sense. And you can kind of feel how each one kind of fits into a certain trope of Mm. science fiction, I guess. Yeah. Even from back then. Yeah. And they do feel a little bit ahead of, especially the second story. I think it feels a little bit like something that you would see 25 years later in, mm. in a lot of the American magazines, not to say that there weren't, and we're definitely going to be covering some very special authors from that scene yet, but it's just really interesting to me how like, Nate, you compared it to the Martian Chronicles earlier. Yeah. And I do kind of see a little bit of that. I think, although the story do get more detailed and the third one is the, almost it's like the most fascinating and intricate but to me it was also kind of the most disappointing i think it just it just seemed like he kind of just ran out like he ran out of something yeah i don't know time or ink or paper <laughs> <laughs> it just kind of like yeah he had introduced all these situations and characters and conflicts and then he didn't really do anything with any of them and like something happens to the main protagonist and that's it. Like, yes. just, we don't know how anything resolves, and mm-hmm. I don't mind ambiguity. I like ambiguity, but, I don't know, it just it just felt kind of like something just stopped, like, abruptly. <laughs> you know, yeah. and it's just such an interesting setup, and and I was like, yeah, this is the best of the three, right? And I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, but it's also kind of the most disappointing of the three, because it, it...
2: Yeah, I mean, the one thing I wanted more from these is just more. I, I, mm-hmm. I think these all could have easily been standalone novellas, if not a full-length novel in the case of the third one, because it does have mm-hmm. several characters and plot points that probably could have sustained itself for a good fifty, sixty thousand 60,000 words. But yeah. yeah, it's only roughly nine or 10,000 words, so it's quite mm-hmm. a small fraction of that. It is interesting in relation to the American magazines. The nature of these three stories are all different from one another. And in a sense, it kind of reflects the Soviet pulp magazine landscape at the time Mm. they didn't appear in World of Adventure but since World of Adventure was the most popular and longest running magazine publishing this kind of fiction it kind of I guess set the standard and model for all the other magazines to follow Mm. and it did publish a lot of the non-science fiction adventure stories like there was a lot of caveman weird dinosaur stuff that appeared in World of Adventure that probably Mm. came into Russia through the Argozi-type pulps, you know, burrows and people like that doing that kind of sword and planet, you know, lost earth, lost race kind of fiction with weird reptile creatures that merge into a more science fiction direction in the American pulps later. But I think around 1924, they were more of a primordial mess rather than any kind of specific strain of... Uh, genre though these stories and certainly a couple others that we'll be covering at a later point are definitely more science fictiony in tone it's kind of interesting to see how the especially two worlds plays out as it does feel like a more deliberate fusing of the two genres, the weird yeah. caveman stuff and the futuristic society. It's
1: even got like a fight with the beasts and everything and like Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, Tribe Women with Arrows and
2: Yeah. And it's got
1: all those things. Yeah. And then the first the first one is like this melancholy catching a glimpse of a lost race, kind of like a almost weird tales esque yeah. kind of thing. And then yeah, the third one is this like workers revolution story. Yeah, it's it's definitely a really interesting mix of moods. And overall, I really liked them. I just, yeah, like, it it, did seem like there was a lot of cleverness, too, in the way the second and third story were tied together. Yeah. I thought. Yeah.
3: Yeah.
0: Because there's different moods and stuff, you do sort of wonder at first how they might be considered like a trilogy. And when it comes to the connection between the first and second, it really feels more like there's one very specific paragraph that if you miss you kind of don't realize that they could be related but then like yeah the third story really ties things together
2: yeah it puts an interesting spin on the second story because at first when I read the end of two worlds I didn't really know what he was getting at Mm -hmm. but then you read the third story and it kind of makes it clear despite the fact that none of the characters of two worlds are mentioned by name and towards a new yeah. sun and the stories presumably take place like millennia apart from one another mm-hmm. the time scale is kind of hard to figure out exactly i was yeah. placing the first story in like 1950 or something like that still roughly within the time frame of the russian revolution but with mm-hmm. the human technology set like slightly forward and a little yeah. bit more advanced than existed in 1924 but yeah especially
0: it's... since they do mention like the effects of the russian civil war and
2: exactly stuff. yeah right. yeah but the other stories are, like, centuries, if not millennia past right. that.
1: And the other yeah. stories are not concerning humans either, right. really. Yeah.
3: Like, <laughs> yeah. So,
1: I mean, they seem to appear human, and they do a lot of human things, including drinking alcohol again. Yeah. Like, <laughs> that's a thing.
0: And they do refer to themselves as humanity, mm-hmm. except there's something very interesting. There's one part where they refer to something as a Mars quake yeah. <laughs> instead of yeah. an earthquake, which was just a fun yeah. little moment.
2: Yeah, I mean, because the word for Mars in Russian is the same as in English, Um, Mm -hmm. and that was part of the text, which I thought was a clever thing that he did.
0: Yeah. and I think it is very interesting that the first story is like the one that features Earth and people on Earth, and then it sort of establishes the frame, and we go into the more elaborate pieces on Martian culture.
1: yeah. And it's cool because you don't, like, see that there's necessarily going to be a sequel at first. You're like, oh, that was an interesting melancholy science fiction story about a dying race. And you're thinking, oh, that's cool. I'll never see them again. But then (laughs) it's like, the brings in the second one. And then I won't get into specifics now until we talk about specific plot elements. But there's a thing at the end of the second story where I was, like, thinking I was disappointed, but not in the same way as I was in the end of the third story. It was more like, oh. He's going there with it? Like, why would he say that? And, and it was like, it actually bugged me a bit. And then I read the <laughs> third story and I'm like, oh, I get it now. I get why why the characters were talking like that at the end because yeah. that's the way they are, in fact. And, yeah. and you don't see that quite in the second story because you see it's somebody looking for their daughter and somebody else looking for their husband, right? And that's like a, a thing that every human can sort of identify with, right? And so you don't really think a lot about where these characters come from and the society they live in and like what means anything to them, right? And then at the end, you catch a glimpse of it and it's a little bit ugly and you're like, oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> that, that's, like, that's what you're thinking about. Like, yeah. I'm sure you guys know what I mean and, and yes. we'll get to it. it yeah, it's, definitely. it's quite a...
2: And I mean, that's one thing I liked about this, even though it does have its flaws that are very apparent. The more I think about it, the more I like it in that it does present complex flawed and sometimes unlikable characters that are well written and have their place in the universe Mm -hmm. they're not like just villains or flawless heroes Though we do get a couple flawless heroes more in the third story yeah a lot of the characters feel more complex and real than something you'd get in a lot of the american pulp magazine type stories I mean, mm-hmm. it presents a darker shade on a lot of the characters and makes them, I guess, flawed humans rather than mm-hmm. you know, a, a spaceman with a laser gun or something like that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you definitely did see stories like that in, in the American pulp too, but they may have been more of an exception than the rule. Well, there was a lot of stuff that was not like that, and that's what most people remember them overall as being like, even if it's usually the the other stories that are anthologized, you know what I right. mean? So, and I think we'll be getting to some of those writers next episode, but for now, yeah, this is like, and this is what earlier too. This is like 1924. So it's yeah, pretty early for these kind of, like it really feels like the second story is a first contact story, right? Yeah. So, and it does remind me of like, not only William Burroughs, in that there's like the caveman in the fight with the beast and stuff like that, but also like something like Star Trek maybe or something like that, where there's a group of people and they're trying to make contact with an alien culture for the first time and they don't really know what to do. But there's some, in story two and three, there's some extreme time jumps and it almost feels like what you were saying, Nate, there's room for more in all of these, right? Yeah. And it almost feels like there's chunks missing, right? And you just kind of, all of a sudden you're like, quite a bit forward in time and things have yeah. changed quite a bit yeah and you're sort of playing catch up and our is kind of telling you about it but you kind of wish you'd seen a little bit more of it firsthand i think i don't know that that's kind of how i felt
2: it does make me wonder how much more of there might there be i know mm-hmm. two worlds when it appeared in the magazine not in the final book form was apparently quite abridged Mm-hmm. And when I was initially going through another story that appeared in World of Adventure, Vladimir Orlovsky's Steckerite, the version that appeared in World of Adventure initially was heavily censored. So I wonder if, mm-hmm. since Orlovsky had problems with the authorities basically his entire life, I wonder if he had longer versions of these stories that got clipped by the censors in some way. Yeah, before it made it to publication.
1: I mean, it does seem possible. Like it does, considering how clever a lot of the story is. Or yeah. I just I kind of feel like, I mean, I, I I don't I like short stories, and and we're gonna talk about one soon that's very short as well, and that I think also maybe could have been longer. But yeah, like yeah, here it does kind of feel sometimes like something has been excised. Like like something's not quite there, right? And we been told about things after the fact and like between one chapter and the next a whole lot of stuff has just happened that could have Mm -hmm. been part of the narrative and it's just not right like yeah i I don't know i just kind of wonder i guess we may never know
0: yeah because even you had mentioned the kind of ambiguity of the end of the third story but they all kind of have these pretty ambiguous endings that and it feels like Maybe there could have been, like, a fourth story that kind of fills in a little bit more of the last one. It almost feels like it's kind of, you're left feeling like it's ambiguous until you get, like, another piece in the next story. It is one that you can see continuing.
3: We were
1: reading Mm Vladko last time, and it seemed like he had actually expanded that short story into something longer, or Mm -hmm. at least used bits of it for something longer. And it seemed like this could have been that too. It could have been like, this really does remind me of what became like the fix up novels in American science fiction. And Mm. a lot of the time in those, depending on the author, but like the one by Clifford Simot City, especially, he did a lot of additions for the book publication so that it was more like a coherent single story. And, filling in different things that were not in the magazine publication, right? Whereas you get something like The Forgotten Planet by Murray Leinster, which I kind of read most of a little while ago. I didn't read the last story yet, but I probably will someday, because it's a fix-up with three distinct parts that are obviously written at completely different times. But there's also a prologue that kind of ties everything together. But in general, it feels like there's kind of separate stories that were written during different times which they were. This all these stories were published around the same time so I kind of wonder maybe he was planning on another one like he could have written another one in short order I guess if he'd wanted to.
2: He does have another story about Mars. The description makes it sounds like it's more earth-based. Oh, it's yeah. very short. I think it's roughly somewhere between the length of Professor Dageen's Observatory and Two Worlds. Like, it's only like 3,000 words or something like that.
3: Right.
2: So, okay. I don't know, maybe I'll take a look at that later down the line. Mm-hmm. The other science fiction story by him, The Gift of the Cell Knights I was able to find online, sounds almost like an unofficial sequel to H.G. Wells's First Man on the Moon.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And that the plot description made it sound like it almost takes place directly after the events there. So, it's kind of interesting. I wonder what he was reading. It probably wouldn't be too out of the question that he would have been familiar with hg wells as i know he yeah. was widely translated in russian and yeah
1: Wells seemed to have been popular and in, in yeah Russia, Russia.
2: but i mean yeah they do feel like an early fusion of what was appearing in stuff like argosy at the time and what we'd later get in astounding and planet stories a couple decades later and this is 1925 when the book version came out of all three of them together which was like a softbound version. I was looking online for any original copies and I stumbled across this Russian auction website that it went for mm. like the equivalent of, I don't know, $75 or so oh. a couple years ago. But yeah, it doesn't seem like it's too easy to find a good condition copy just because it was softbound and presumably was meant to be sold at like newsstands or railway stations or something like that in mm. the same way that a magazine would.
0: Yeah,
2: But yeah, interesting set of stories. It would be neat to have more. Professor Dowell's head was another one that was expanded out throughout the years. So yeah. it would have been cool if Orelsky had lived further and revisited these and expanded them a little bit. But the fragments of what we do have here and the pictures of this world, I think, are really cool, even beyond historical significance, as they do present an interesting view of humanity and how class relates to itself, and how that can be expressed through these uh, science fiction tropes.
1: Mm-hmm. Agreed. This is translated in-house, so uh, yes. tell us about the translation experience before we uh, get to the individual stories.
2: Yeah, I thought Orelski was a pretty easy author to work with as far as the translations go. The most difficulty I had was a couple bits in the third story, where there's a lot of very Soviet-style abbreviated acronym words that are kind of clumped together. So I was just thinking of, well, what's the best way to translate this into English? But I kind of notated my thought process as I went along for any, I guess, involved decisions just to give the reader a sense of what the original appears like. And there really weren't too many of those notations in the first two stories. It's kind of more limited to the third. But no, I, I thought generally translating this was a pretty fun enjoyable experience and he gets kind of poetic with some of his descriptions of nature Mm. i think it it comes out of his earlier poetry work which seems to be what he's mostly known for in the english-speaking world but the descriptions of the trees in the first one when the pilot is kind of descending into this thick forest he talks about the green wool of the vines coming up of the earth in the third one a fair amount of times. Some interesting word choices that Orrowski uses for yeah. that kind of stuff. Again, I, I wish he would have done more with that stuff and, and filled these out with some more of that poetic description throughout some of the other parts of the novel.
1: Well, there's a lot of that in the first two, I think. And then the yeah. last one is very urban. like yeah. It's very, yeah. This is the futuristic grinding society that we now have, right? And I don't know, maybe that's, I, I don't really know, like, it seems like he got into a lot of trouble, like, anti-Soviet <laughs> yeah. propaganda. I mean, I definitely don't see any of that in these. Like, I mean, maybe they're not as jingoistic as Vladko, but they're pretty, I don't know, they're pretty, like, worker solidarity and... and...
0: It does seem to me like there's a couple of kind of appeals to Soviet readers with Definitely well like of course the the workers' revolution, but even during Two Worlds there's talk of religion and it's like, no, we don't it's all nonsense. Uh, And he keeps making very, very insistent asides, like this is all nonsense. They are completely primitive in thinking about this, kind of making very clear (laughs) to all the readers out there.
2: In these enlightened Mm -hmm. communist times that we now live in that thought is of a well-gone <laughs> yeah. primitive era yeah no definitely yeah his, his notes are pretty funny to the modern reader especially as mm-hmm. he gets into the some of the details of Deimos and Phobos's orbits and how far they are away from Mars and all that stuff
1: mm-hmm. cool well why don't we get into the individual tales then and what happens in them
3: yeah <laughs>
0: Professor Dageen's observatory starts with another Dageen, a pilot, rapidly descending after his engine breaks down. Surrounded by forest, he manages to land upon a rock formation that rises above the mass of trees. The area, the name of which I will not say as I will butcher it entirely, (laughs) is familiar to Dageen, who lived there with his father before the former moved to Leningrad. His father, an astronomer, had previously lived in Moscow, but moved to the area Nagin now finds himself in so he could work on his own project, a new refractor design. He had remained there after Nagin's move to Leningrad, and they had lost touch with each other. While Nagin is looking for a way to descend the formation, he is astonished to find a building, one so high up, He enters the building and inside finds a vast room containing telescopes, various papers, and an old man, who looks to have died recently, sitting in a wheelchair. Among the papers is a diary, which Daguin leafs through, coming to the realization that this is his father's observatory and the dead man was his assistant and the writer of the entries. He starts to read through it. The entry starts with the old man saying his mentor, Professor Daguin, died a few months ago at the time of writing, dying from radium rays accidentally sent from Mars, and claims that the refractors can only be used safely by wearing clothing of lead rubber and masks of lead glass. He also encourages the reader of the entry, the one who discovers the observatory, to deliver the professor's last letter to his son, something the old man is no longer capable of doing as he, too, is dying from the radium rays. He then details the professor's discovery and how his death came to be. Professor Dageen's refractors no longer needed the body of a telescope, instead tunneling a cylinder into the rock, placing lenses and eyepieces to the openings. The observatory was built over two years, and once they had finished it, they were able to make numerous observations, the most significant of which were of Mars. Through the refractors, they could see cities of Mars along the planet's canals, as well as vehicles that took inhabitants across the surface, as well as from Mars to colonies on their moons Phobos and Deimos. The man and Professor Daguin called the two major cities they observed, the City of the Sun and Nilo-Cirtis. As the moons were close to Mars, one of them, Phobos, started to fall towards the planet's surface. This resulted in not only Martians from cities in danger of being destroyed, but Martians on Phobos to evacuate to the City of the Sun, which was overwhelmed by refugees. As more aerobiles, overtaken by inhabitants from the Moon colony, approached Mars, the city sent out radium rays to destroy them. One of them was unintentionally directed towards Earth and hit Professor Degen. Shortly after, once Phobos had destroyed life on the northern hemisphere of Mars as it crashed, Professor Degin lost his life, succumbing to the effects of the ray. His assistant, writing the entry, concludes it by confessing a similar mark the professor sustained appearing upon himself, condemning him to the same fate. Once finished with the diary, Degin also finds and reads the letter his father wrote to him. A deep melancholy falls over him. The story ends with his thoughts. Life is a violent whirlwind of frantic movement. Countless, incredible, incomprehensible combinations of life. Hurry up and get ahead in life. If you fall behind for a moment, you'll never catch up with life. You'll never come back. But if you overtake life... So, yeah, starting off with one of those kind of ambiguous endings there.
2: Yeah, I mean, it also leads to the practical thing of, well, how is the gene, the pilot, now going to get down from this strange observatory 5,000 feet up in the air with his <laughs> craft busted? Yeah. Is he going to just die and rot like his father and his assistant?
1: Yeah. And it seems like he was putting a moral slant on it at yeah. the end, and I don't quite understand what his moral, like, what the moral gist of that is exactly. I mean, I, I kind of get it. Like, he's referring to the lost civilization and how i guess you need to take life by the horns because you never know when your right. planet's gonna... <laughs> kind like, of i don't know it's just it was kind of weird like I don't, I don't want to say it was tacked on but it was kind of like i don't really need you to make a moral out of this like it's a kind of a cool <laughs> melancholy tale again of like i don't know almost like one of the catastrophes that we saw in an era right but yeah this time experienced through a weird telescopic device right It's another world.
2: Yeah, there's very cool sci fi gothic imagery of the dead man in the chair Mm -hmm. in this huge observatory with all the kind of futuristic telescope astronomical equipment lying around. Yeah. I thought that was a pretty cool scene. I also Mm -hmm. like the world building element of the fact that the Martian civilization uses these holographic projections Mm -hmm. of newspapers and whatever is. I guess messages need to be communicated in a similar fashion that we saw in Fortune from the Sky.
1: Yeah, I thought of that too.
2: And instead of here, they're using it for like actual useful information and not And the paparazzi are gone into
1: a little <laughs> yeah, more. Yeah, right. Next story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the rich and upper class have interesting methods of avoiding them. Yeah.
2: <laughs> but I mean, so. it's, it's one thing where I guess the professor and his assistant are able to presumably learn so much about Martian culture is I guess they'd somehow deciphered the Martian language and can read about the newspaper events that are happening as the panic is unfolding and what the Martians Mm -hmm. are actually doing to maintain control and order of the society, even though it all kind of collapses and falls apart into total chaos.
3: Mm -hmm. Yeah,
2: It's an interesting subtle touch that he doesn't really dwell too much upon, even though the holographic newspapers are, I think, mentioned in all three stories.
0: Yeah, they are mentioned at the beginning of two worlds. Yeah, and I, I believe they are. I can't remember exactly where in the third, but I'm sure they're mentioned there as well.
3: Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. I'm uh, surprised that they didn't mention anything about some of the future characters using them as advertisements.
2: <laughs> yeah, I know. I guess that has not entered the Soviet mind. Yeah, selling things and making a profit <laughs> doesn't seem like something that the Communist Party would be too interested in. So. No. no, 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 not at all.
1: <laughs> so somehow the Martians' communication rays are lethal to humans?
2: Yeah, so I think they have oh. two kinds of beams, like a communication ray and a weapon.
0: Yeah, cuz they attacked the squadron that was coming from the moon, I think to prevent more refugees from coming yeah. and I think one of those those are the rays that hit the professor.
2: Yeah, Mm -hmm. and it's interesting shaky science because I don't know if he's implying that it was just like a real lucky freak shot that this accidental beam happened to hit the exact observatory where they were standing or if he's meaning to imply that the telescope somehow refracted the Mm. rays onto him and that you need like a protective suit to shield yourself from the telescope amplifying harmful radiation. It's not really gone into that yeah. much but either way the science is a bit shaky on that point
1: but it did definitely remind me of like some of Clark Ashton Smith's science fiction stories you know he has a few different modes and he wasn't alone in writing these kind of melancholy sci-fi stories where a person gets a glimpse of an alien culture and it's really awesome and he likes it a lot <laughs> but then it gets destroyed somehow yeah and he can't go back there and now he's like Miserable for the rest of his life because (laughs) (laughs) it was so good and awesome, and they respected him, and humans don't, right? So it's kind of interesting that it gave me that kind of reminiscence.
0: Yeah.
1: A few of stories like that, even though it wasn't quite like that because he was really just looking at it through a seeing a picture of it Mm. as it happened. But Mm. yeah, it's interesting. Definitely. On its own, maybe quite minor-seeming, but in the it's connected with the other two tales. It, yeah. they, they all form something pretty cohesive, I think. Definitely. Even though,
0: yeah. And like I mentioned, I, I like that there is that Earth framing. We see things from a uh, human's point of view before going to the Martians. Establishes something familiar before we turn to something that may be less so.
1: Yeah.
2: It's definitely a good setup of how he frames the next two stories as far as the events that have long-lasting impact in this world and how mm-hmm. society would perhaps react to those events and what would happen in other elements as far as biological evolution and social evolution.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and it seems like he planned like how the society was going to be up top Like, right from the beginning. Yeah, yeah. But he didn't tell you about it right away. And I don't know, uh, again, like, it does make me wonder how the censors responded and how the editorship responded and what they cut out for that other publication that was censored, right? And what might have been even cut out in this magazine publication.
2: Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, I have had very little luck in finding original scans of the magazines that these appeared in, like the texts themselves are in digitized plain text, like Project Gutenberg style, all over the internet. But I haven't found any like actual like scans of the magazines with the original typesetting and any potential advertising or columns. Even the bigger magazines like World of Adventure, like a couple of sites will have the covers posted and maybe like a photograph or two of like a couple pages, but. Nothing like Amazing or Astounding or any of the other American pulps, which are pretty much all available on various places online in their entirety, you know, scanned in high quality and and, and all that stuff. So it's a little disappointing because we can't really get at the answers to those questions easily. I, I think somebody would have to do original research inside Russia to track down those kinds of answers. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't look like even in Russia, Oralski is really that recognized of a figure, especially for these science fiction stories. I think like in the English speaking world, he's mostly recognized for his earlier poetry stuff inside Russia. So, I mean, it's it's a bit hard to get at the answers of some of those questions, which is in a way a little frustrating, but at the same time kind of mirrors some of the other American pulp authors we covered of, you know, like Nixon, Jollis, or we're, we're wondering, you know, who exactly was this person that wrote these weird stories. Yeah, in Orelsky's case, it definitely seems like it was planned out from the beginning as far Mm -hmm. as how these stories go. I mean, we've read stories on the podcast before where the author is clearly just winging it as they go, and these do definitely not feel like those kind of stories. It feels like Mm -hmm. every piece is deliberately inserted in here as far as its place in the whole saga Mm -hmm. goes.
0: It's possible that, I mean, it seems like maybe Dagin and Two Worlds might have been written immediately like side by side yeah. because they were published one issue apart right. so maybe he yeah. already had them both ready
2: yeah i'm not entirely sure of the timing on when these were written again the the russian language sources are pretty brief as mm-hmm. far as what they cover i don't think anybody's done like an in-depth biography on him or study on his works but mm-hmm. yeah it definitely seems like they were written roughly around the same time when he started writing again after the civil war ended
0: Two World starts with the doctor, Ni Atsu Sol, calling his daughter, Gi Sol, asking her to meet him. He also requests that she bring her husband and newspaper editor, Anu Ala'a, and the engineer, Okyagi with her. When the three arrive, the doctor speaks of his trust in them, including Akyagi, o- yeah, Okyagi, uh because... <laughs>
2: The Martian names are pretty ridiculous.
0: Yeah, Aker. I assume Oak.
2: Oak. Oak, yeah. Yeah,
0: Oak Yagi, because he is engaged to his other daughter, Ni-Sol, who has recently disappeared. When the other man reacts to this, Ni-Atsu-Sol tells him to be patient, then speaks of the tragedy he experienced when the city he was born in was destroyed due to the falling of the moon Phobos. It is the area that was destroyed, the northern hemisphere of Mars, that the Doctor wants to discuss. Despite the complete desolation there, new life started to emerge, prehistoric life, that included Martians who resembled distant ancestors of the Martians on the southern hemisphere. Though there have been movements to destroy this new life, the Doctor and others in the Martian government have decided against such actions, instead sending out an expedition to study these emerging Martians. The first expedition was led by Ni Sol, but she has not returned. So Ni Sol has been able to prepare for a second expedition to search for her, which will consist of the present company. After getting confirmation that Ni Sol's life is not in danger, due to a letter the doctor has received from her, the others prepare to start their search the next day. The story focuses then on Cree Sharptooth, one of the inhabitants of the Northern Hemisphere. The spring that his tribe relies on has dried up, which they take to be a sign of displeasure from their god, a black stone by the spring. Cree wants to offer a shell to the black stone as an offering, something that came to him in a dream. However, as he does this, a ka, which is a bear-like creature, approaches him. As the creature is sacred, believed to carry the spirit of the black stone, Cree does not shoot arrows at it, but he is saved by another being which kills the Ka. He calls the figure the God of the Mountains. The God of the Mountains turns out to be Ni Sol. It was she who initially caused the spring to dry up, diverting the water to the cave she was working from. When she saves Cree, the latter tells the rest of his tribe about the God of the Mountains, which gets him exiled for, for the blasphemy against the black stone. This did not stop, though, doubts towards the Blackstone's true power from growing among the group, as hopes of the spring returning dwindled. When Cree, still in exile, offers a gift to the god of the mountains instead, Nisol sees this and finds him beautiful and his devotion powerful, so she decides to answer his prayers and return the spring to him. Before this happens, though, Cree meets with Obin-Peru, his lover, who, though she had been visiting him in the night before returning to the tribe, resolves to stay with him from then on, desiring to be his wife, even though her father wants to find and kill him. Cree tells her that they should move away, that her father and the Blackstone have less power than the god of the mountains. Not long after Obin-Peru falls asleep, Cree sees that warriors from the tribe have found them. Cree fights them, and so does Obenpuru when she is awoken by the situation. Cree kills most of his assailants, except Obenpuru's father, who flees, but he loses Obenpuru, who had been shot by an arrow in the chest. Cree believes that she can be resurrected by the god of the mountains, and takes her body to the spring, which he sees has returned. Coming back to the doctor's expedition, he reads to the others the letter Nisol had sent. In it, she wishes for future scientists observing the prehistoric life to be more adventurous, and tells him of her dwelling in a cave near the Martian tribe, watching them through the use of an invisibility suit. They also discuss the area, with Gisol bringing up the idea of it as a paradise, a concept the doctor instantly dismisses, speaking of the cruelty and struggles in the place they are heading to. While journeying through the forest, they encounter a giant creature, which they kill with their weapons, and then are surrounded by a group of the prehistoric Martians. When the group sees how they have handled the dead creature, they drop to their knees, chanting, Nisol, Nisol. The Martians then lead the expedition to their village, where Nisol greets them. Later that evening, Nisul tells them that she was initially captivated by these people, by their view of her as a god, but that she has come to find the difference of time between them unbridgeable. She doesn't think they can be of any purpose to the other civilization of Martians, not even as slaves, since their mechanical workers are much more efficient. Then she embraces Okyagi and asks, Do you know what is permanent and eternal? The feeling of love.
2: Yeah, it's definitely yeah. a weird down-ending on this story that I didn't know what to make of at first. Yeah. And when it ties into the third story, it kind of makes it clear, but...
1: I was almost going to go into this big, like, hey, wait a minute, like, is this is this where the Soviet propaganda comes in? We're, yeah. like, only yeah. seeing people in terms of their utility and, like, you can't work, then you're pretty much...
3: Yeah. <laughs> it's,
1: it's, yeah. It's It was unexpected, yeah. and it was a little, like... Yeah, I, I really, I mean, at the the last scene, and I knew it was going to be the last scene because I knew there wasn't much left, and I'm like, okay, so now they're going to reflect. It's just going to be like the last scene in one of those Star Trek Next Generation episodes yeah. where um, Picard is talking to Riker or something, yeah. and he's like, "Well, an interesting culture we've just experienced. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> how do you think this?" Is like, <laughs> and it seemed like it was going to be all friendly, and then, like, oh,
2: yeah, yeah. Oh. Not really.
0: Yeah, it's like what can <laughs> I gain from these people?
2: <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it did really remind me of a Star Trek Next Generation Prime Directive episode.
0: Mm-hmm. I, there's
2: there's so many episodes of this where they contact a primitive civilization and they ponder upon the ethics of what it would be like to make contact with them and sometimes somebody does out of a rash impulsive decision. But yeah. generally yeah. speaking, the morals of Star Trek and the crew are positive where we're really not supposed to like ni soul like she's a pretty yeah. crappy person she just uses the tribe for her own gratification and just gets bored with playing god a couple weeks later yeah despite the fact that she's engaged to be married the tone of the relationship she has with kree almost takes on a sexual nature with how she feels towards him worshiping her. Like she's definitely like like getting off on the whole situation. Um, Strong,
1: primitive man is worshiping me. It's so great. Yeah.
0: Cause I mean, even the others remark, like, I wonder if she's fallen in love and they're like, that's so stereotypical. (laughs) (laughs) That better not be the case. (laughs) Yeah. You get
2: the sense that she does this all the time. And it's contrasted with the fact that she's a very, bold, strong, capable scientist who in any other way is like the hero of a Jules Verne novel, Yeah, courageously plundering into the jungle and conquering prehistoric nature and all that other stuff. I mean, she deserts the rest of her party because she feels like they're a bunch of gutless wimps and they need somebody <laughs> with the courage and the strength to get real science done. Yeah. We just don't encounter a lot of women characters like this in a lot of the early science fiction stories we've read. And in addition to Nisol, we get a couple characters in the next story. But the, the weird underlying thing of Nisol is yeah, she's kind of a crappy person. And I think, mm-hmm. in a way, she's kind of the main villain of this entire arc, even though her direct actions don't really have any long lasting consequence. Into the third story, the way the cavemen evolve into the characters we meet in the third story is a really interesting way on how it ties together.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And despite what I said about the time jumps sometimes being a little distracting in these stories, like, there's two that happen, well, one right at the end of this one, and right at the end of the next one, right? And Mm -hmm. I think in this one, it kind of works, though, because, like, she said, well, during this moment, she cared nothing for her people, and, like, you know, she didn't want to be found, she didn't want to be rescued, but then, as soon as they came... We jump forward at time. It's been a couple of weeks, and like she's tired of the whole thing. She doesn't really want to be <laughs> yeah. gone anymore. It's, yeah. like... <laughs> it's like get me out of here. I want to go where I can have a shower and, and nice clean clothes. And <laughs> I don't know. It's interesting. Yeah, it was unexpected because I guess. Not really having a handle on the psychology yet, being that it was such a short story, and, and it kind of gets brought to you, home to you at the very end, but it's kind of like, I thought, oh, maybe she'll... Yeah, maybe she'll decide to stay with them, right? Like, I didn't know what was going to happen.
3: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: And, yeah, it wasn't like that at all. And and yeah. the people that said they knew her, I guess, really did know her. And... she's <laughs> yeah. kind of fickle.
0: Yeah. Embracing her fiancé when you're, like, thinking about how... There is that relationship she had with Kree, and you're yeah. thinking, oh, okay, well, yeah. <laughs> that didn't seem to go anywhere.
2: Yeah, I mean, she gets his girlfriend killed and gets him expelled from the tribe, and yeah. he almost is killed by his warriors, and she just kind of doesn't care. And she, <laughs> I don't know, brushes yeah. the whole thing off. And the only reason they're in this mess to begin with is she wanted to get water easier.
3: Yeah.
1: Hmm. I mentioned The Forgotten Planet by Murray Leinster earlier, and like that's basically about this world that gets sort of half terraformed but something goes wrong and the planet gets abandoned and so the last stages don't happen and like so all these out of control mutations happen with the insect population and they become like giant sized and stuff and then just the prologue takes place over several thousand years so then this ship from earth crashes on the planet which has been forgotten because it's the forgotten planet obviously mm-hmm. <laughs> and and the descendants of the people who crashed on the ship are now primitive tribes who have to fight these insects. And right. so the main characters of the first two of the three-part fix-up novel are slowly evolving, I guess, people who have descended into Barmerism and and who have no choice but to live on the edge and constantly have to battle these giant mutant insects and stuff like that. And It's very pulpy, but... Like, it reminded me of that, like, and there's, you know, the scene with the, the beasts, and obviously, like, in all these tribal stories, there has to be the dangerous <laughs> yeah. totem animal that, that yeah. like, is if you come into contact with it, you'll probably die, but you also worship that animal in a way, and, and I don't know. But it also reminded me of Hard to Be a God by the Strugatsky brothers, which is, yeah, it's a pretty similar idea in a sense of, like, some, you know, kind of a more supposedly advanced culture and how they interact with a human branch of human evolution that developed in a different way on another planet. And it's kind of more sophisticated than this. It's very philosophical, like a lot of their, their works, but yeah, like this one has a nice sting in the tail, I think. And it progresses well into the next story.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't feel formulaic in that way, even though the influences (laughs) of some of the stuff that did appear in the Muncie pulps, like Burroughs and Merritt, were both translated into Russian. So I'm, I'm sure Orelsky was familiar with them. It does feel like a precursor to a lot of stuff that did come later. And mm-hmm. the idea of, you know, a future primitive society and w- what that would mean, I think, has gone into more than a lot of the later science fiction stuff. And this does feel like an early iteration of that.
0: Mm-hmm. I did mention that there are those asides that feel sort of like pointed in the way they're trying to support certain Soviet ideas right. specifically towards religion, it does feel kind of like overall this might be a jab at that yeah. Soviet idea of utility and the way that there's a focus on the mechanical over the natural and the, the kind of more spiritual elements of it, because it does seem in the end that you are supposed to side more with the primitives than, Absolutely. These, oh, yeah. you know, <laughs> stuck up. <laughs> quote-unquote civilized people that come in and just ruin their lives for no reason and then get bored
2: yeah i mean that was a big part of arelsky's earlier poetry stuff and the whole ego poetry thing is the contrast between man and nature and it's more desirable to return to nature or more live in one with nature than Mm -hmm. i guess the modern world was progressing and would it progress even further in by the 1920s? I guess the Soviet Union was still reeling from the effects of the civil war, and the forced industrialization hadn't really happened on the scale in 1924 as it would in the next couple decades. But mm-hmm. I, I think there was still some of that stuff going on inside Russia yeah. at the time.
0: Yeah, and it also might cast the whole like last part of the first story. The but if we overtake life, you know, that kind right. of plays more of a role here and in the next story yeah definitely and should i move on to well,
2: yeah let's see, see how it, this thing Yeah, ends. let's move
0: oh.
1: forward a couple of thousand years or however much it is yeah. right?
2: <laughs> <laughs> so,
0: yes
1: been several generations anyway
3: yeah
0: At the time towards a new sun begins, the surface of Martian cities are facing immense cold, gradually losing the light of a fading sun. In an effort to escape freezing, inhabitants have moved deeper into their cities and workers have been moved underground. At a government meeting, an engineer by the name of Ropage explains their present catastrophe. He speaks of how their ancestors had predicted the time of their sun's death, which had been prolonged by the use of radium. However, they can delay it no longer. Instead of accepting death, though, Ropage announces the completion of apparatuses at their planet's pole, ones which will use the force of explosions to break Mars from the sun's gravity to find a new sun. He predicts they will arrive at a new sun within two years, but that they must perform the breakaway immediately. After a brief moment of communication, the orders are executed and the planet begins its journey. Ropage returns home, satisfied that the action is underway. His ancestor was involved in the creation of the solar engine, the aerobile that allowed interplanetary travel. After its creation, Mars made contact with Earth, and the aerobile creator founded the Solar Engine Society, in charge of factories producing aerobiles. It is a society that Ropage is now leader of, though with the dying sun, the society had fallen apart. Now, though, Ropage considers his future. With the success of their breakaway and quest for a new sun, he may be able to regain his prosperity, and the society can rise again, Aerobeel's once again in production. His daughter, Meta, though, is not as satisfied. She speaks to Rail, an engineer, and Verne, an astronomical scientist, against her father. She worries about the influence her father's party has over the public, and wants to establish relations with and support from the workers who are treated like slaves. The two men listening agree, and Vern also shares the news that, according to his own calculations, Mars will enter the new sun's gravity several months earlier, with more violence than the government is suggesting. A shock that could destroy buildings, factories, and machines, signaling a new life to the trio. Meta also begins to discuss plans when she visits the engines at the pole with Ropage. She later comes to him and requests Rail come along with them, to which he concedes. We then shift to Magir, a worker at the pole who enters one of the cafes built to entertain the workers when they aren't on the job. Some of the other workers gathered around him to ask questions, and he reveals to them the news he's heard from the engineers, that they will arrive at the new sun in six months. The other lament that they will still be in the same positions, working away underground, not able to see the sun like the people on top, but Magir implies turning against them, He then further reveals that they have supporters among the people on top, and that he knows the factories and buildings will collapse due to a Mars quake, leaving the upper class powerless. After his discussion at the cafe, he leaves to find the woman Ari, who he runs into singing of the new sun. They go to a theater which no longer uses props and scenery, but projected onto the stage, and the inner thoughts of the characters are projected as well.
1: This was a really interesting, cool, yeah, like, yeah. S- story within the story kind of weird depiction that seemed like it wasn't necessary, but it was a really cool addition. And, I mean, yeah. I guess maybe it's just because the story seems so short and so many plot threads were left dangling that it sticks out a little more that it doesn't belong. But it was also really cool to get that kind of cultural background a little yeah. bit.
0: a little bit of yeah. world building. Yeah. The play is Sun Org Interplanetcom. <laughs> <laughs> All one word. <laughs> That's almost as difficult as saying the other Russian area that I did not decide to say. Yeah,
2: I tried to look that up and that doesn't seem to be a real place, though the yeah. triangulation of the rivers are like actually real. But that city, it just I think he just made it up for the story. Yeah,
0: yeah I did also look it up and I did not find it.
2: Yeah, but yeah, the... Fake, I guess, Soviet abbreviated terms that this is clearly making fun of are pretty funny. I mean, yeah. looking at some of the Soviet organizations and governmental bureaus, they all have absurd names like this, and this is obviously played up for a comedic effect. But yeah,
1: yeah. so maybe he would have gotten along better with Bogakov than we would expect.
2: Possibly, yeah. I mean, <laughs> they both had troubles with the law for yeah. being the wrong kind of, I guess, uh, political thinker. So yeah.
0: But uh, yes, a sun or com yeah. is the romance that ends with the projected message, keep working hard, we will soon see a new sun. Don't forget that you're doing a great job saving life and civilization. Long live the Interplanicon Council. Long live Ropage. So, no propaganda there.
2: Yeah.
1: Very dystopian.
2: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I guess it should be noted that the word Council in Russian is Soviet, which is where we get the Soviet Union from. Mm. So uh, when it's translated into English as Soviet, it has very specific connotations of being mm-hmm. tied to the Soviet yeah. Union in that form of government, which is why I translated it as council, because obviously the Soviet government wouldn't be established on Mars millions of years right. in the future, and it is how we would use the word.
1: I think for something like Vladko, it makes more sense yeah.
2: to use like very
1: literal translations like that, because yeah. like it was very obviously a piece of Soviet propaganda really, and, yeah. and it was meant to take place in America in the nineteen twenties probably ish. Yeah. And this is something otherworldly. So I don't know. I just maybe maybe that's bias on my part, but I think that it was a right decision to
2: yeah. to De- change that. Definitely. So. And I, I think Interplanetom though, with that in mind, is seems like almost a satirical take at Soviet bureaucracy yeah. and the party leadership, even though there's obviously pro worker sentiments throughout this entire story and a general sympathetic cause with the revolution and the working class rising up and all that, I think he is making some jest at the Soviet party structure and power system with this. Yeah.
0: It is kind of like we're supposed to see that Hage is kind of a, a capitalist figure. Right. And it's, it's kind of transposing the capitalist ideals that obviously the Soviets would be against but also still mocking the Soviets through that. So I I can see maybe why they might say some of this could be anti-Soviet propaganda.
2: Yeah, Hmm. and since this is relatively early as far as his fiction goes, I'm not exactly sure what his later works were in tone.
3: Hmm.
2: I'm not sure how much there's room for anti-Soviet propaganda in a historical fiction work about Ptolemy, but certainly his other science fiction stories could, explore those ideas a lot more if they do indeed do that
1: yeah and who knows historical fiction could still be
2: used to yeah that's true
1: it, yeah. in fact sometimes you can get away with things in that that you couldn't get away with later on in Russia like they did not want people making like fantasy films but it was okay if it was like a Russian folk legend right they could yeah. do all kinds of fantastic stuff
2: everybody back. loves Pushkin yeah exactly <laughs>
1: <laughs> so yeah so, yeah, Meta, she's not exactly like... What's her name in the second story? I forgot Niesel. her name. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
0: There's Nisol and Gisol, but yeah. Nisol is, <laughs> is the one that's the scientist. <laughs> yeah, the,
2: the Martian names are... Yeah.
1: yeah, I have trouble remembering character names when they're like Bob Johnson. <laughs> yeah. This, this is...
3: <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, she's not exactly like that, but I think in a way... It's interesting, the choice that Arelsky makes, because it feels like she's pretty destructive, too. And she's, again, she's tearing apart the love of these two people, right? These two, in a relative innocence, although I don't think he's that much of an innocent compared to the tribal caveman (laughs) guy. But, like, he's still kind of maybe a little bit more naive, and, and she's pretty saintly, and she obviously loves him very much. But, you know, this Meta, she's like the upper class, I guess, ally who sort of has all these plans and knows what she's doing. And she's really admirable and he can't help but but be more drawn to her. And it's kind of like, you don't really know what happens to her at the end, I think. She's probably going to be... She probably has a better chance than a lot of the other characters will, right? Yeah. Getting through all this alive. Mm -hmm. Because... She still has a position in everything. <laughs> right. We don't know what happens with her father either. Like, that was one of the other dangling plot threads that sort of... It was weird because he has that last scene where he meets with the awesomely named Vern. Yeah. And they, like, have a discussion. Yeah. And at the end, he's, he seems very thoughtful. And I'm like, oh, he's planning something. What's he going to do? And then he just never, like, the next chapter you find out that he died somehow and he never shows up again.
2: Yeah, I, I don't know. So <laughs> I don't
1: know, I just, I, I liked the way this one was going. I liked how much he was cramming in there. And that's kind of why if I had to pick between all three stories, I would say the second one was probably still the best one, because I feel like this one just had so much going on and didn't resolve most of it. It hinted at all these interesting things, like a yeah doomed love triangle and the relationship between father and daughter and workers revolution. How's that going to pan out? And like moving planet, like moving the planet <laughs> to a different sun. Yeah. How's that going to pan out? Like, yeah, <laughs> it's just, holy crap. There's so much in here. Yes. And I love short stories. Ninety, but I don't know, maybe not 90%, but I don't know, like a lot of what I read are short stories. And even like, you know, we were talking about the what we're reading, and I forgot to mention all the short stories that I read. And it's, of course, you know, there's just too many of them and whatever, right? But sometimes you do kind of think, hey, more would be nice here. Like
2: you Yeah, know, it's... this one I think especially could benefit from being a 60,000-word novel instead of a 10,000-word short story. Yeah. I mean, the characterization that we do get here is pretty cool. Like, I like Mita as a character. She does come from that rich upper-class activist mold, but she's got some pretty smart mouth one-liners to her father. And yeah, I, I like the kind of caustic relationship between the two of them. Her father just kind of expects her to be this fiery character. and He's like, all right, whatever. I'll go along with whatever you're saying just to appease you. <laughs> but, but he does not yeah. seem to sincerely care about her and her well-being, even if he hates what she stands for and all that. It's an interesting mm-hmm. contrast between the two of them that we just don't really get that much of a, resolution too no
1: and it looks like a really interesting like it's burgeoning into something really interesting and like i thought at the end at least they would have a confrontation and again he's not a one-dimensional character like you kind of feel like he could be reasoned with right like i mean he is kind of the, the evil capitalist overlord but he's portrayed with enough personality and nuance and you know he really does care about his daughter and he's kind of like joking with bird almost when they're talking yeah. you know and, and it doesn't seem like super threatening but at the same time you're like yeah he could kill me right like if he wanted to just snap his fingers and... yeah but he doesn't quite seem like that kind of person and so i just kind of yeah i want there was so much more that could have happened and, and when i got to the end of the story i kind of like had to do a double take, and like, wait, that's it? I thought there was a little more, I, I didn't realize. <laughs> yeah.
0: Magger's mind, however, was elsewhere during the production, thinking of the work that awaits them the next day. However, he agrees to go with Ari to the dance hall. After dancing a while, he leaves her, and comes across a few drunk men who mock him. Egged on by the group, and slightly intoxicated himself, Magir goes up to one of the men and pushes him down forcefully enough to break the chair beneath him. He then feels depressed, wandering out into the deserted street and walking until he reaches a bench. Ari appears, catching up with him, and expresses concern, to which Megir replies by asking if she will be with him and help them become free. We return to Meta, who is able to contact the workers through rail. The one she meets with ends up being Magyar, and agrees with Rail's opinion that he should be the leader of the rebellion. They begin meeting regularly to discuss plans, and as they do so, Magyar starts to feel an affection for Meta One of these meetings, though, delays a visit to his mother, Maita, who... <laughs> they really had to make their names very similar. <laughs>
1: It's really trying to confound us
0: here. Ni Meta, gi maita.
1: And it's so funny because it's the opposite of the problem in the next story. <laughs> which I'm sure we'll have something to say about, yeah. which it, it's just really funny to me. Something that Italian movies do as well. Yeah. But anyway,
0: that's so <laughs> <laughs> Yes, maita, not Meta, is in a hospital after working herself to sickness. When he arrives, he finds out she will die soon and has something to tell him. She speaks of a time she was on the surface as a child and saw a painting of a lush green landscape, an image she now dreams about frequently. She wonders if this could be their possible future, to which Magyar agrees, revealing to her the coming revolution. Mita then tells him of a secret society his father was a part of that dreamed of a similar future and where he can find the laboratory they set up, and dies soon after. The next time Meta comes, Magir relays all of this information to her, and they find the lab together. It contains a receiver that allows the two to see the surface of the planet, and they see that they are approaching the new sun. Meta, at this point, recounts the story of Magir's ancestors, thus explicitly connecting all three stories. She says that after the moon Phobos destroyed one half of Mars, a new prehistoric society eventually emerged from the area. The people of this society were enslaved by the other, more technically advanced Martians, as they needed manpower when the growing cold destroyed many of their machines. She concludes by stating they must win, that the two peoples can merge into one, aided by the living conditions promised by the new sun. The two then embrace. Later, as Magir sits alone in a worker's cafe, Ari finds him and warns him that he is going to be arrested. They see soldiers looking for him as they leave the cafe and make a run for it. He takes Ari to the laboratory, and when she questions his recent distant behavior, he exposes his worries about his own will, his desire for the new sun and the future, and his meetings with Meta. Ari tells him all she needs is her love for him, nothing else, and the two leave the laboratory once it's safe and part ways. The story focuses back on Ropage, who has learned of the planned uprising among the workers. He discovers that Rail, Vern, Magir, and his daughter are involved, and that Vern has been arrested while the others have not yet been found. He is not surprised that Meta is part of this plan. He decides to see Verne and ask about her. When the man appears in Ropagey's office, he asks Verne if he would really betray his society now that they have come to the new sun and can continue their way of life. Verne affirms this, declaring the society as a parasite, expressing his anger at how they have treated the workers. Ropagey responds with doubt that the workers will really be any different if they are given power, but then asks Vern where Meta is, to which Vern only says she is safe. He tells Vern that he will be convicted of treason, which will lead to his death, and has him taken away. As the planet begins to orbit the new sun, a part of the lower mines is destroyed, which Magir and the others, in favor of the rebellion, use to encourage the workers to head to the surface, at the same time, the guards watching over the workers abandon the mines and close up their gates, setting fire to the factories before they do. Knowing that the fire-reaching gas tanks will destroy the mines, Magir asks for help to extinguish the fires, and Ari comes forth, wanting to go herself so Magir can survive and lead the rebellion. Magir receives a message from Meta, who tells him to use the trains in the mines to break down the gates. The workers, in a panic, first block the train's path, but they calm down at once Magyar speaks to them. As he approaches the gate, Magyar tells Meta that she will lead the rebellion in the event of his death. He pulls the lever of the train, crashing it into the gates, and the sun's rays fill the mines. As the rebellion rages around him, Magyar dies, succumbing to his injuries. And that's the end of the story.
2: Yeah, noble self-sacrifice yeah. for the rights of the workers from both Magir and Ari. Yeah. Right.
1: From the couple, they don't even get to die in each other's arms.
2: Yeah. Mm. <laughs> they do have a pretty tearful and moving emotional goodbye, but yeah, they both meet their deaths separately.
1: Mm-hmm. So they figured out how to use them. That's a big revelation, right? Yeah. Is that?
3: Yeah.
1: Oh no wonder we're like this. We've been slaves for thousands of years or something, right? <laughs> so. <laughs> Enough is enough, right? It's getting mm. nothing but worse, and yeah, now they're flying off into space, and and who knows what's going to happen, right? So mm. I don't know. It's it's <laughs> such a an interesting set of things all happening together. Yeah, it's you almost feel like it could be about one or the other if it's that short. Mm. I think the Runaway World did an interesting job of telling a story that was about the planet being relocated yeah. it wasn't mm-hmm. certainly as involved with social issues although there were some hints of that and mm-hmm. there's certainly a lot less to chew on than this but this is yeah it's almost too much
3: mm-hmm.
1: it needs more filling out the gaps right and yeah. like i don't know i i liked what he was setting up so much right and i don't know it's just all these relationships don't really come to what you would expect or anything so mm-hmm. I don't know. It was it was good though. Like it's a really interesting set of stories and it's definitely better read as a trio. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. I remember when I was taking notes for doing the the summaries. I had already read all 3, but I read the first one first again uh Dageens, and then I read the last one and I read two worlds after just because I wanted to get the first story and then the longest one out of the way first. Yeah. But when I returned to two worlds, like I enjoyed it more knowing what happens in the third and, you know, having the context and realizing just how well they fit together as yeah, they're the same story.
2: Yeah, it's cool how they all relate to one another and mm-hmm. the events of the first story lead to the second story, which lead to the third story. And you don't really see a lot of these kind of shared universe type stories in 1924, 1925. In the science fiction genre.
1: No, they're definitely they're definitely coming around and like one of the things I've been kind of getting into lately again is E. Van Vogt's stories and he definitely does that with a lot of his stories. He does like sort of end up tying them together and it's subtle enough that well, as subtle as Van Vogt can be anyway, that when you read an individual story you don't necessarily feel like you're missing stuff that much, but you know, it all comes together and Now, of course, that's a huge thing. Everybody wants that, right? But yeah, yeah, back in 1924, you didn't see it that much, I don't think.
2: Yeah, because I mean, these were initially published in separate issues of a magazine. So I don't know what the deal with the third one was, if it was published in a magazine or or not. Again, the information on Orelski and the original magazine publications is kind of sparse, but presumably they were meant to be read as somewhat standalones in a rather disposable format of a softbound magazine, mm-hmm. or even the Tales of Mars itself was softbound. So I guess it lends itself more to the format of needing to make them separate entities rather than a serialized publication, though some of those magazines did do serialized novels across some of the issues.
3: Yeah,
1: mm-hmm. a lot of
2: the SF magazines did yeah. serial novels. Weird Tales did them. Yeah, World of Adventure did in, in Russia, so I, mean, I guess it wasn't yeah. unheard of, but the chance that you're going to get somebody for one issue is going to be more likely than getting somebody for six issues in a row you know? right right
0: yeah though they are works that could potentially be read individually yeah. um it, it is just that they work so well together that yeah it would be kind of less interesting to read just one
2: yeah i mean they are standalone tales though like they yeah. are millennia apart Perhaps even in the case of the second two, perhaps millions of years apart. Again, the Mm -hmm. timescale is kind of hard to get a hold of, especially because the Martian lifespan seems longer than humans. I think the doctor from Two Worlds said he'd been alive for a thousand years or Mm -hmm. something like that. He also
0: does mention that the Earth's moon had crashed into... (laughs) (laughs) So it's been long enough that the same thing happened to Earth that happened with Phobos on Mars...
1: Yeah, which... yeah, yeah. And we have Dangerous Minds again, of course. Right. In this one, too. Um, but yeah, I think if any of them works well on its own, it's the first story. Like, mm-hmm. that one. It's it's sort of connected to what came after, but it doesn't really have to be. Right? Like, they could be considered that the second one is a recite if you wanted to. Mm-hmm. But I think if you just read that one on its own, you would probably be still left wondering about that nasty taste at the end and what that means, right? Yeah. Like, what mm-hmm. did they to it would kind of put a damper on it and then you read the next one and you see what he was planning all along and it makes the whole thing better. But again, I, I think I might be a little more forgiving of the last one because it was part of the trilogy, mm-hmm. right? Because, like I said, I do have problems with it. <laughs> so, yeah, but I, I, I don't know. I, this was a really interesting set and never translated into English before, we believe. So. Yeah. I enjoyed these. Sometimes with the newly translated stuff that we do, it's a little bit touch and go sometimes what it's going to be like. Like, uh, I had a hell of a time with Senor (laughs) Knickknack. Yeah,
2: I kind of want to revisit those early works, like those weird 19th century Russian chapbooks and Knickknack, because that was some of the first translations I'd done. And I think with those, the temptation to go for a more literal translation presents itself rather than something that's a little more... Yeah. readable, though it's kind of hard that. to strike that balance with those odd 19th century works that are kind of in archaic language to begin with, like a lot of the spelling and knickknack isn't how you would spell something in modern Spanish. And the Russian language itself was fairly different in the 19th century in that when the Soviets came to power, they modernized the language and got rid of like three letters. And you know, change the spellings of a bunch of words and things like that. So the mm-hmm. Russian use in those stories is also archaic. So yeah. again, it's hard balances to strike. But fortunately, the 1920s stories that appeared in magazines are a bit easier and more straightforward, and I think present themselves more to a straightforward, readable in modern English translations. Yeah,
1: and we think maybe these are not, Literary masterpieces, but yeah. I don't really know that they were to begin with. Right. And they seem quite readable now. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I think if people are really curious about some quite obscure Soviet science fiction from the early 1920s, they should go to our blog spot and they should read these stories.
2: Yeah. And we have some other ones up there posted. I posted Vladimir Olovsky's Steckerite as well as N. Pavlov's Chicks, which mm-hmm. are both from the magazine Sphere and the 1920s. Steckerite is much better than Chicks, though. Chicks is not a bad story. Steckerite is probably the, I think, my favorite out of all the 20s Russian stuff I've looked at so far. So definitely check these out. Check those out if you're interested. And certainly give us any feedback on what you think about the stories and the translation, because I think they've been a lot of fun to do. And it's rewarding stuff to get through, especially as they haven't been translated into. English before and are relatively unknown authors in the English speaking world I think the, again, only English language mentions of Oralski's work are the ego poetry stuff and maybe like a cursory mention of the science fiction stuff but certainly nothing in depth from any of the sources I was able to find anyway Mm
3: -hmm. Yeah,
1: well Nate, that was definitely a worthy endeavor like I was saying I, I do think that I enjoyed these quite a bit and mm-hmm. Gretchen, this was really cool really cool talk, and I think that definitely people should read these and decide for themselves what Arelski was how he might have carried it on, I yeah. guess, if he'd gone on for another another tale, because yeah. I think he could have, most definitely.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: There's so much unresolved in the last one, but certainly an intriguing setup. Lots of interesting cultural background and yeah, it's it's shockingly dystopian at times, but it's not in a way that's subtle enough that when you first start, you don't necessarily realize, you know, like you don't know what you're really in for. And yeah. Even saying that though, the villain of the last story is not that villainous. Yeah. Like it's kind of like a little bit of a a little bit of a character, even a little bit of a joker. And I don't know. I really like the description of him sitting there basically in his like bathrobe or something yeah. like that <laughs> in, in the last chapter where he appears and he's just like lounging around and, and i can't remember exactly how he's described but it's just very like decadent but done in a way that's kind of admiring almost like you can feel aralski is kind of chuckling to himself as he's writing about this yeah. this dictator guy like sitting there his, like, <laughs> in his bath clothes and just kind of Thinking about his daughter and thinking about the troublemakers, and <laughs> I'm gonna see this Vern guy and have a little chat with him. I like that.
0: Yeah, I was expecting someone who was definitely a much more like evil capitalist caricature that you yeah, might see, but it's not. He is kind of
1: more like Jonathan Govers. Yeah. <laughs> I think empers. Yeah,
0: <laughs> it is. It's similar, kind of, to Chef Ron. You know, yeah. with the way that he's kind of there's a more more nuance to him than I would have expected. Mm-hmm. In fact, the the last story was similar to Anyara in a few different ways. With yeah. The, I was expecting the, the two to dance the year, or get the dance hall.
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah, their dancing hasn't yeah. really gone into that much, but yeah. there are some nice other subtle world-building touches throughout the entire saga, as well as mm-hmm. those nice flashes of characterization that do try to present these more as people and not one-dimensional heroes or villains, even though some of the characters in the third story are... Ari is pretty much saintly and flawless, and Magir is our you know, heroic revolutionary leader, they, I guess, feel a little more grounded than some of the other characters that they could have been, like in the Vladko story of yeah. the over-the-top villain and are heroes that are deferring to the Soviet ideology and Soviet technical engineering wizardry to solve all the problems. I mean, the engineering problems here, they get them out of a very difficult situation of the sun going out and what that would mean for life in the solar system, but Their technical solutions at the same time cause destruction and death for everybody in the lower classes. And it's kind of an interesting balance they have to try to strike between maintaining that secrecy and order in society before the whole thing kind of erupts into chaos in a similar fashion that mirrors the first story. So, I mean, while these stories are definitely flawed and not perfect, I think you do get a lot of flashes like that that make these really interesting reads beyond the fact of their early historical significance and the fact that, you know, really see a lot of these stories in 1924. I think they have a little bit more going for it than just being old and from an obscure source of a Soviet pulp scene.
1: Cool, well, I think then we'll close the chapter on Mars and travel to a far-distant sphere in a solar system far, far away and a haunted planet. Mm.